Well, good morning. We are in the middle of an incredible series that can and is and will continue to change your life. Okay, when we open up God's Word and we look at it, this in God's Word, in the Bible, there is the power from God to transform who we are, the way that we live, and the impact that we can make here on our city. And so if you have a Bible, turn in it to Mark chapter 9. Um, if you don't, you can look inside the bulletin. Uh, the scripture we're going to be looking at there is on the inside of your bulletin. There's a place there to take notes as well. Uh, before we read, I just want to remind you that we're in a series called Following Greatness. This is where Jesus is redefining greatness and what it means for us to have a great life. We're going to see today that it's not about seeking your own grandeur. Okay, it's not about that. Um, And you might struggle initially to see how the verses that we're going to look at are connected. Okay, there's several different things that are going on here in this passage. And so before we read it, I want to show you um, just the four sections that we're going to see um, so that you can know how Mark organizes these verses. Okay, first we're going to see in verses 30 to 37 that greatness in Jesus' mind, greatness serves the helpless. Verses 38 to 41, greatness supports all of Jesus' work. 42 to 48, there is much that competes with Jesus' greatness. And then the last two verses, greatness spreads through community. Okay, and so this is what we're going to see. And so read with me, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. Friends, listen, this is God's word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For one, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. So we are walking with Jesus and his disciples on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. Okay, this is a 100-mile trip. So it'd be like if we all decided we're going to walk to Disneyland after the service, right? That's what we're talking about. It's 100 miles. And Jesus, on this walk, he's preparing the disciples for what's going to happen next. Jesus is about to go through something that will literally change the world. And the disciples are going to completely miss it. Okay, verse 31 in our passage tells us what's going to happen. Right? Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to die for the sin of the world. He's telling the disciples that on the cross, he's going to take onto himself the weight of our sins. Okay? And the disciples are going to see it, and they're going to interpret it as a complete failure of Jesus' mission. That's what's about to happen. Jesus is going to have to experience hell itself on the cross. And all of you ever asked, why? If you've been around the church for any length of time, it's easy to take that for granted. But why? Why is Jesus, why does he have to die? Well, it's because, something actually Chad said before, it's because the problem with the world is not out there. The problem with the world is right here. Okay, Jesus knows that. It's, it's sin that is in the human heart. All of us have given our allegiance to different forms of sin in our lives. Right? Selfishness, lying, cheating, getting away with things at work, uh, trying to get our own way in relationships. But these are all sins that destroy the world. Some of us are living for our career. Some of us are longing and living for our own comfort. Um, we live for sex, for alcohol. Some of us live for food. And all of these things destroy the world. Some in little ways and some in larger ways. Okay, when we live for career and for power, for money, for sex, for personal comfort, we fill the world with a self-interest that is at its core destructive. Okay, I don't know if you think about that, but really, like at the core of what's wrong with the world, it takes all kinds of manifestations, but if you're going to go down to the core of what's really wrong, it's that people are living for themselves. Now, religion can't fix this, much as it tries. Buddhism simply tries to sort of flow around the evil and pretend like it's not really there. Um, Self-realization thinks that, well, the problem is something that we can separate ourselves from. Uh, there's a whole host of religions, and there's false versions of Christianity even, that think we can fix the problem just by trying harder. 
But only in Christianity, only Jesus says that the problem is in here. And what we need to fix the problem is a Savior to come and rescue us. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the gospel. Only Christianity says that Jesus came not just to be a good example, not just to be a great teacher, but he came to be the Savior of the world. He came to save us by taking on the guilt and the pain and the brokenness that our sins bring into the world. He came to take it on to himself, and he died under the weight of our sin. He did that so that he could release into the world a power that is even greater than our sin, even greater than our selfishness. That's what Jesus came to do. And here is the tragic irony of these verses that we're looking at today. Here's the tragic irony, is that while Jesus is confiding in those closest to him, that this is what is about to happen. He's about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him. While he's telling his disciples this, verse 34, but they kept silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus is talking about how he's come and how he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to take all of the problems of self-seeking, self-centeredness, selfishness, wickedness, power-hungry, people that are abusing other people, all of the sin of the world. And they're busy arguing with each other about who's the greatest. While Jesus was preparing to take the greatest step in human history, the disciples are arguing over who among them has healed the most people. And while Jesus is preparing to endure the torture and the death of all that is wrong with the world, the disciples are adding to that wrong by arguing over which of them was better than everyone else. This is in very clear contrast, a description of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with our lives. Now, we might not sit around and argue with each other about who's the best. It's possible that you stop doing that when you turn 13 or 15 or 17. Um, I don't hear a lot of people sitting around arguing about who makes the most money or who has the most sex, or who has the best car, or the newest phone, although phone wars do happen upstairs in the office. I will admit that readily. You might not argue explicitly about who's got the most popular social media account. But how much energy do we spend comparing ourselves to others in our hearts? How much energy do we invest in striving to be as good as or better than others? Friends, that is an exercise, that's a striving after greatness that can never deliver anything but emptiness. And Jesus loves his disciples enough to tell them that there's another way to live. Jesus 
out of love for his disciples, tells them that there is a greatness that produces a life that actually matters. There is a greatness that makes a life that actually makes a difference in the lives of others. And the good news is it's a life that you can live no matter what your circumstances are. You can have greatness as Jesus defines it in the midst of everything in your life that's outside of your control. How about that? Because all of the other options, all of the sinful alternatives of what greatness is, so much has to happen in your life that's outside of your control for it to actually come true. But what Jesus is offering to us is something that you can have, and you can start having it today. Today. And so we're going to see, and and Jesus is going to aim us at that kind of greatness, and we're going to see it in four points. So if you want to write some stuff down. To follow Jesus' greatness, the first point is, Jesus says, aim to serve, not to be first. Okay, aim to serve, not to be first. This is verses 30 to 37. I want you to look, either in your Bible or in your bulletin, at verse 32. Um, It says that the disciples, when Jesus was telling them he's about to die, they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Okay, we don't find out until later, until verse 34, why they were afraid to ask. Okay, this isn't just that they didn't have categories for a, a Messiah to come, die, and rise. We talked about that before. That's there, but... The problem was, the reason they didn't want to ask Jesus is because they were busy arguing over who of them was going to be the greatest. They were busy arguing over when Jesus takes his throne, who's going to have more people? Who's going to have more people to rule over? They're counting how many jewels they're going to have in their crowns, how many people they're going to be ruling over. And so when Jesus talks about suffering and dying, they don't want to hear it. Okay? There are times when the disciples can't understand, and then there's the times when the disciples don't want to understand. And that hits home, doesn't it? And are there things that you don't want to hear Jesus talk about? Jesus talks about some things. He talks about judgment in this passage, hell. He talks about areas of life that are sinful. Um, Do you feel like you don't want to know about those things? Are there things that you just wish Jesus wouldn't talk about? I think some of us want Jesus, but then there's stuff about him that we really don't want, and we get a little bit afraid, and we sort of think, look, if I don't ask, then I won't be responsible for this. Yeah, I've heard some things in the Bible, but, you know, I'm just not going to worry about it. N.T. Wright said this, he said, If, like the disciples, we're still concerned about our own status and what's in it for us, that leads us to a narcissistic sense that the gospel exists to make us feel good about ourselves. And it's kind of difficult because the gospel is great news. Like, it is good news. It is amazing news. Like, look what has come into the world kind of news. And it's caught us up in it. And, and, and there's forgiveness, and there's acceptance, and there's, there's power, there's growth, there's development, there's a new heart. There's, there's all these wonderful blessings that are really good for us. And sometimes the blessings themselves of the gospel can make us think, you know what, this really is all about you. 
But N.T. Wright goes on to say, if that's where you are, you're very unlikely to be able to hear what God is actually saying. If you're worried about your comfort, if you're worried about your status, if you're worried about being first or being better than, or even just being at the same level as, if that's your focus, if that's your aim, if your aim is to be first, then you will not be able to hear what God has to say. I mean, this is tragic, but it happens all the time. Um, there have been times in my life where I realized, like, good grief, like, I had no idea I was coming across this way to my kids. I had no idea that I really wasn't hearing my wife. Um, and it took years for me to finally wake up. Why is that? Well, it's because prior to finally waking up, I was so busy worrying about myself. I was so busy wanting to get my way and putting my needs ahead of everybody else's that I didn't have ears to hear. I was deaf. I was blind. So Jesus, he confronts the disciples, and as he confronts them, he also confronts us. Jesus says, look, if you want to be greatest... Okay, fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. It's interesting, right? If you look at verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, say, okay, look, there, there is something, you want to do great things? Okay, I'm in. Like, I will teach you how to be great. I'm going to tell you how to do it. In verse 35 he says, you want to be great? Here it is. Be last of all and servant of all. You see that? If you want to be truly great, if you want to follow the greatness of Jesus, if you want to be first, if you want to be preeminent, if you want to be first in line, most important, uh, most prestigious, most honored, most valuable, if you want to be richest in the things of God, Jesus says this is, this is the path you need to walk on. Be last of all, and servant of all. Don't, stray, don't aim for prestige and popularity. Don't aim to be seen as first. Instead, aim to serve. Aim to serve. If you want to be great, that desire should occupy you constantly. In fact, guess what? The clock's already started. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, strongly supporting those who are on his side, those whose heart are completely his. And so God right now is looking at you. He's evaluating your life. He's measuring what are you aiming at. He knows. He knows exactly what you think. He knows what your motivations are. He knows everything about you. And it gives us a chance to ask, what is my aim? Am I aiming to be first? Am I focused on my status or am I aiming to serve the people around me? Greatness is measured in service, in sacrifice. Greatness is measured in the number of people served, not in the number of people who you are over or who even you are leading. 
And in verse 36, Jesus drives the point home with a child. Um, This is an infant. Jesus takes this infant in his arms. Um, Why does he do that? Well, because he wants to give a a picture. He wants to make it really clear so they don't misunderstand what he's saying. Um, What are infants like? Well, they are constantly needy, and they are most often ungrateful. Okay, sometimes it's because they don't know how to be grateful. There's no, there's no, sometimes the voice doesn't work yet. They can't say, thank you, mommy, for serving me tirelessly all day and all night. Infants can't do that. When it comes to infants, you get all of the work and none of the credit Right? All the work, none of the credit. Because let's say you stayed up all night, right? And because your infant was sick, wouldn't stop crying, was colicky, couldn't fall asleep, you can't figure out how to get him to sleep, you stayed up all night. And you tell somebody the next day, like, what are they going to say? Oh, here's a medal for you. Like, no, that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's what it means to be a parent. You don't get credit for that. All the work, none of the credit. Infants bring out the opposite of what you do if you're looking for grandeur. If you're looking for status. Because even the credit that you get, it's not for years down the road. Right? And if you're looking for grandeur, if you're looking for status, boy, you're looking for here and now. I want to taste it now. Right? But the patience that's required by an infant. Moms, Man, if nobody else appreciates you, Jesus does. And I know dads, I mean, it's us too. In a traditional thing, if you come home from work and you serve, again, you don't get credit for that, right? And, and a lot of people think they have an excuse to just like, well, I worked all day, so I don't need to do this. And that's ridiculous because she's also been working all day. Um, all the work, none of the credit. Taking care of an infant is the opposite of what you do if you're looking for greatness according to the world. But Jesus says, hey, you know what? This is a great picture of what I'm asking you to do. I want you to aim to serve. And Jesus makes it clear that when you serve a child, someone who is needy, in the name of Jesus, where I look, you've got to catch that. Verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so, when you serve a child, this could be a literal child, this could be someone who is childish in their faith, this could be someone who is just needy and potentially ungrateful. When you take care of anybody in the name of Jesus, meaning you show them the love of Jesus, you show them the grace and the forgiveness and the understanding and the sacrificial service of Jesus, when you do that, you are actually serving and receiving Jesus. And that's what it says. And Jesus says, but I'll do you one more. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And so even more, you are receiving God. I like this, because this is Jesus actually, again, not aiming to be first. He's actually, Jesus is here for God, not for himself even. 
right? He's like, and it's not even about receiving me. It's about receiving the God who sent me. Well, how is this work? Well, it's because you are receiving God's ways of showing loving service to others. You're willing to serve others who are needy without needing to be recognized and thanked. And so, when you aim to serve, right, not to be first, you might not receive praise, but what you will receive is the affirmation of God himself. That's what Jesus is promising to you. And so again, if nobody else sees what you do, if nobody else affirms you, if you get no credit from anybody, Jesus is saying to you in these verses, I see what you do. I see the sacrifice that you make. I see the fact that nobody appreciated you. I see the commitment that you are making. I'm with you. And this is receiving others as adopted children of God. Right? This is receiving others, no matter how needy, no matter how ungrateful they might be, as people who have been adopted by God. And so these verses go right alongside with what John encouraged us earlier in terms of serving with our children. The kids are up there and they need someone to show them that God is reaching his adopting hand out to them. Our children need people to teach them to reach up and to reach out to their Heavenly Father. But our kids are not alone up there. Jesus is up there. And so when you receive them by volunteering in our children's church, you receive Jesus. And you will meet him up there. Not because you'll have the most electrifying spiritual encounter when you're up there. You might leave pulling your hair out. You might feel frustrated. You might get really angry with one or two or my children up there um, if you get the right class. But you'll know. You will know and Jesus will say to you clearly, by receiving these, you receive me. I think that in the midst of this, as Jesus is trying to get the disciples to aim at service, um, I think he used this infant also because Jesus has a long-term view of the New Testament church. I think Jesus is planning and training the disciples to understand that children are actually part of God's family and they matter. Okay? If the world was going to end in five years, in ten years, in 35 years, then in some ways the kids are a little bit ancillary. Right? They don't matter so much because what really matters is getting out there and making sure the gospel goes to all the nations of the earth. And I think what Jesus is doing, though, is he is preparing the disciples for the long haul. He's preparing the church for the long haul. And he's saying, in order for the kingdom of God to grow, in order for the gospel to do all that it's supposed to do in the world, you not only need to tell your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your family members about me, but you need to raise your children so that they love me, too. Friends, this is why we baptize our children. 
is because they rest in the arms of Jesus. We're going to see that more um, in chapter 10. And so, so Jesus is pointing out to his disciples, look, you aim to serve, not to be first. Okay. Then he goes on, and the next three points are much shorter than this one. In verses 38 to 41, Jesus says, aim to greet, not to compete. Okay, this is me getting my poet on here. Because um, that rhymes. Did y'all see that? It rhymed. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, verses 38 to 41, this, uh, John brings up, hey, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And so this is another example of the disciples complaining about their preeminence. Okay? In the previous section, it's, hey, we're the greatest. In, this, in these verses, the disciples are saying, we are the only. Okay? They're saying, look, we're the only ones. We're the ones in Jesus' special group. We're the ones Jesus has appointed to be the apostles. We're the ones that are supposed to be exercising and healing people and doing all these things. And if anybody else is out there, well, no, 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 like, we're going we're gonna to put a stop to that. Jesus says, wait, wait, no, stop. Don't forbid them from that. If someone else is casting out demons in my name, that means he's following me. He can't do that without my power. He can't do that. If he's doing it in my name, you have to remember, he's following me even if he's not following you. And so for us, I think that greatness supports God's work everywhere it's happening. Okay, greatness doesn't get territorial. Greatness doesn't get jealous. Greatness doesn't look at other churches or other denominations and rip and tear them down because you feel like you're not comfortable that God might be working outside of the box of our church or our denomination or our way of doing Christianity. This is big for, especially for, I mean, um, I guess what's the best way to describe this? For, for significant parts of our denomination um, that are very proud of the fact that we believe in reformed theology and we can give you a systematic understanding of the entire Bible from beginning to end. Um, we can tend to look down on other people and other churches that don't do theology as well as we do. Um, and what I've seen happen is that people from our denomination can discount and discredit the work of God in other denominations because, well, yeah, but they're not really preaching the gospel or they're not really doing it right. And I think for us, Jesus would say, hey, if they're, if they're working in my name, don't stop them. Don't stop them. Don't compete. Man, you want to aim to greet, welcome what God is doing outside of these walls. Welcome what God is doing beyond. Because um, even if they're not following you, if they're doing things in my name, they're following me. And so, greatness doesn't hog the stage. Greatness shares the stage. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to be honest about who we are as a church, obviously. But, there's an attitude toward other types of Christians that can, sink, that can seep in where we're looking for greatness because if we're really right, then we should be the biggest. If we're really right, we should be the greatest. Jesus says, no, that's not my heart. That's not my heart. Then, verses 48, or 42 to 48, 
We see here that we need to aim with trust and an eye at your rust. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate your smile. Um, Aim with trust and an eye at your rust. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, look, if I'm at work outside of these walls or outside of our group, then celebrate that, welcome it, support it, and encourage it. Okay? However, there are things that will go on out there that are not from me. Okay? There are false teachers out there. There are people who offer lies. There are people who are in it for the money. There are people who are um, doing things that really will cause other people to not follow me. So there are other religions. There are other, like there are cults where they take some of the truths of the Bible and they completely corrupt them so that people can't even know Jesus. This is who Jesus is talking about in verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Right? So if anybody causes one of Jesus' children, one of Jesus' followers, to stop following Jesus, to stop believing in the gospel, it would be better for him if they were to suffer a torturous, drowning death. And so, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, look, you can trust that God is going to take care of the stuff that goes on out there. It's God's job to judge, and he will judge. He will judge those who are outside. And so, Jesus says, I want you to aim at doing your ministry with trust. Trust in God. Trust that he will defend his children. Now, if they're part of your group, then you teach them, you train them, you make them discerning, you help them understand and to know what's right and wrong, what's true and false. You become discerning, you shepherd your people and just need to realize that everything that goes on out there is not your responsibility. Okay? That God will handle them and he will bring judgment. He'll bring judgment on them. So that's verse 42. But then verse 43, Jesus sort of makes a turn. He says, yeah, there are false teachers out there and they will get the judgment that they deserve. But don't think that you are exempt. Okay? Don't think that the problem, again, is only them out there. Realize that we too, we also need, you need to cut the sin out of your own life. There are all kinds of things that happen, not out there, not with decisions that get made or political things that happen. There are so many things that happen in your life, from your hand, from your feet, from your eyes, that can cause you to sin. And so if there's anything that's going on in your life that keeps you from following me and my ways, get rid of it. Cut it out. Jesus is not speaking literally, but he is speaking with incredible sternness and sobriety. Right? Just because this is a metaphor doesn't mean it's not serious. Right? The seriousness of the metaphor is, is because Jesus is serious about this. If there is anything in your life that is causing you to not follow Jesus, cut it out. It could be what you're looking at. It could be pornography on the internet. It could be the way that you look at other people. 
Right? It could be things that your hand is doing that sometimes goes right along with what you're looking at if it's pornography. Um, it could be things that you do. It could be places that you go. Right? And Jesus is saying it would be better for you to literally cut your feet off so that you can't get there to sin than for you to have two feet and be sent to hell. It would be better literally for you to cut off your hands if doing that would help you follow Jesus so that you didn't end up two-handed in hell. And so Jesus is saying, look, look, God's judgment is coming. The word hell in these passages is actually, it's, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was the name of a valley in south in the southeastern part of the city of Jerusalem, southwestern part of Jerusalem. And it was used as their trash heap. So what they had was a landfill in the southwestern part of the city. They would just dump their trash there, and they burned it. And so day and night, literally, they just had the fires going constantly. And so that's what Jesus is saying. And even before Jesus' time, that place became a metaphorical image for the ultimate judgment that would befall God or would befall the people that aren't following God. And so Jesus says, again, aim with trust and an eye at your rust. Your rust is your sin, obviously, and that needs to be taken care of. And then the last thing that Jesus says is if you aim for peace, your influence will increase. These are the last two verses. Thanks for the laugh. Appreciate it. Um, I try to make ways to get these things to be memorable. Aim for peace, and your influence will increase. That's what these last two verses are. And there's a lot of confusing stuff here. Um, For everyone will be salted with fire. Huh? Like, what does that mean? Jesus, you just talked about hell. Does that mean everyone's going to go to hell? Well, no, that's not what he's saying here. Um, Because he then turns and he says, salt is good. And so what Jesus is referring to is he's taken this image that refers to the judgment that will go onto God's enemies. And then he's taking that image and he's now reminding us that that image also has a positive. That there's a positive image in the Bible when it comes to fire. And so sometimes the fire consumes and destroys, but sometimes that fire purifies. And it makes clean. It burns out the impurities. And so the process that they would go through was they would take metal and they would purify that metal by burning away the impurities. And so what Jesus is saying is that everyone will, be, will, will go through fire. Some will go through fire to destruction. Um, those are God's enemies. God's people will all go through a fire, a purifying fire, that will lead to them becoming pure, that would lead to them really becoming salt. So that not only will you be pure, but you will be an influence on others. Like, this is God's desire for people. That's why Jesus in Matthew says, you are the salt of the earth. My design is that you would preserve the earth, that your presence would not just add life and spice to an otherwise boring and dull world, but that you would actually infuse grace and the presence of God into the world. Like, that's God's design for his people. He calls us the light of the world. He calls us the salt of the earth. These are images that are designed that we who have experienced God in the gospel, we who have experienced what Jesus has done for us, that we would begin to spread this to others. How do we do that? 
Well, Jesus says in the last verse, he says the last phrase, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So how do we do this? Well, we cultivate peace with one another. What does this mean? This means that we live as the best family you could imagine. This means that we as the church commit to having relationships within the church that are good, solid, supportive, caring families. This means that when you come in, you realize that not only are you adopted, but everybody else who's following Jesus is adopted. And so we're all brothers and sisters. Jesus says, it's sort of like the end of this whole section where Jesus says, look, instead of competing with one another, you need to realize that you're on the same side. And what you ought to be doing is encouraging each other to aim at serving, not being first. And this is how we can be the people of God. This is the mission that God has given us. This is the mission that we get from our Savior. And it's clear to me, it may not be to you yet, but it's clear to me that for Jesus, like he must have said these words in pain. He must have said these words pained over the fact that the disciples still don't get it. The disciples still haven't figured this out. And even the disciples' own competition, the disciples' own desire for personal greatness, the disciples' own efforts um, to compete and to be the best, like that's part of what is driving Jesus to the cross. So friends, this is greatness that Jesus doesn't just call us to do, but this is greatness that Jesus walks first. And so for the times that you don't want to serve, for the times that you really are jealous of other people, um, at those moments, in those relationships, like, I want you to remember that before you were even born, Jesus walked this path for you. Jesus did not come to be great, but he came to serve. He came and made himself last of all. He did that constantly by serving in his life and then ultimately in his death. And on the cross, he hung there for you. He died for your sins. He died knowing that you need salvation. You need to be saved, rescued, and redeemed. And in his death and resurrection, he brings not a power that can, like, that's greater than what's out there in the world, but he, he unleashed a power. It was the power of a love that was so strong that when you receive it, it compels you to share it. Jesus experienced the worst of hostility and animosity from God on the cross so that he could give you his peace. This, this is our Savior. This is greatness that's not grandeur. This is greatness that comes in serving. And when you embrace this, when you realize that Jesus did this for you, that becomes the fuel for you to share this with others. And it's when you begin to walk in this, when you begin to aim to serve, 
when you begin to have in your mind, in your family, at work, in your neighborhood, with your friendships, that, you know what, I'm here to serve and God's going to take care of me. That's when God's presence begins to grow. That's when our city becomes renewed. That's when our church becomes this incredibly welcoming place where people come because they can taste and they can see Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we know that this is real greatness. We know that this is the greatness that you brought into the world. And we also know how far we are from this. Forgive us. And Jesus, help us this week to commit to this. We have depended on you and you've met us in our dependence. Help us this week to strive to serve others. To just put ourselves last in line everywhere we go so that we might display you, so that we might experience you. Thank you for being at the end of the line waiting for us. Help us to see you there, to meet you there, and to be united to you as we serve others this week. We pray in your name. Amen.